as I'm sure you're aware, I have now putting out weekly episodes, half of which are the lit review, and I wanted to take a second to thank the patrons that have made that a little bit more sustainable and something that is doable. I really appreciate that y'all acknowledge my labor as a woman of color, as a Latina woman, and are, you know, putting your money where your values are. So thank you. Thank you to Jorge Aceves, Gigi Castaneda, Michelle Lee, Cassandra M, Claudia Pacheco, Ashley Cordero, Virginia Murillo, Denise, Shelby Larson, Giovanni, Maria Cepeda, Maria Ocampo, Roman Castellanos, Ana Huerta Aladin, Silvia Gonzalez, Joseph Falcon Freeman, Willa Rowan, Claire McGoffin, Rosario Walters, Allison Levine, Fernanda Herrera, Elisa Jimenez, Rebecca Magdalena, Avenicio Cisneros, Amy Tannenbaum. Thank you all. As a quick reminder, another way to support the podcast, if giving monetarily is not an option for you right now, you can like us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, and you can also rate and review the episodes on Apple Podcasts, and that's actually a huge, huge way to help. If you feel strongly that you've learned great things or that you've gained new insights from listening to the podcast, I would really, really love it if you would share that on the Apple Podcast because platform because it really, really helps with visibility and gaining new listeners. So I would appreciate that, and I hope that you enjoy this interview with Gabby Corrales, a lawyer in Tucson who does detained deportation defense for children. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited and honored today to have my friend and colleague, Gabby, here today to talk about her various experiences with representing detained children. I think this is a really important topic because I think there was a real big craze around family separation last summer, but the truth is that kids continue to be detained and it's it's important to keep being outraged about the issue because yes, you know, that one specific policy has ended, but kids are still being incarcerated and kids are still being separated from their various family members in lots of different ways. So I'm really excited to have you on today. Quickly introduce yourself and the most relevant facts about you, (laughs) where you're from. Hi everyone, my name is Gabby Corrales and I'm uh, the managing attorney at the Tucson Kids Office here for the Florence Project. And the relevant things about me, I guess, are that I'm a Tucson local now yeah. not a native but local yeah and i have a little daughter her name's emmy luna and she's Aww. awesome so she's like the center of my world um she's and I, the best two-year-old swimmer in tucson <laughs> i'm serious <laughs> and i'm a big family person i have a huge mexican family so i'm always with them in some capacity or another Cool. All right. So let's get into it. I first wanted to talk about the Flores settlement because those that phrase has been in the news a lot and I'm not sure people really know like what the original case was about or why it still continues to be relevant today. So something that I thought was really interesting about the case that originally settled this was that it stated that part of the reasoning for the holding was that detaining minors wasn't punitive because the detention never exceeded what needed to what was needed to fulfill 
the government purpose of quote-unquote preserving the welfare of these uh, unaccompanied kids. In your opinion, is the detention of children punitive? Definitely, right? <laughs> like anybody you talk to will, will probably hopefully tell you the same thing or yeah. I'd be a little concerned. So I think that the Flores settlement was trying to do the best that they could yeah. in, under the circumstances, but children are still being detained every day all over the country sometimes for long periods of time when sometimes they don't need to be detained yeah most of the time 90 percent of the time i think they don't need to be detained and that money could be used for lots of things like providing attorneys for those kids to help them through this you know monumental process they're going through so also can we talk about right to counsel do kids have a right to a lawyer in their deportation proceedings no Uh, (laughs) so the majority of kids out there in the world do not have the right to counsel and so they have to go defend themselves before you know experienced ice attorneys trying to (laughs) deport them from the united states and i think that's really shocking and we see the kids that are released that Fortunately, we are able to offer representation to here in Tucson. Mm -hmm. They fight for years and years because they have somebody guiding them. Sadly, that's not the case for most kids. They don't have the right to counsel. Yeah. So what are the different avenues for legal relief that a kid can seek in the U.S.? Yeah. So kids have a, a few different possibilities. The first one is special immigrant juvenile status, and I think that's maybe the most well-known and Mm -hmm. basically what it means is that one or both of the the child's parents abused abandoned or neglected them Mm -hmm. those definitions have like a lot of legal implications so i'm not going to go into them but Mm -hmm. there's other there's other avenues like asylum so if the kid has a fear of returning Mm -hmm. or if they've been trafficked or if they've been a victim of a crime in the united states or if they have a family member who has legal status of some sort, then they might be able to be petitioned in some way or another. Mm. And based on the clients that you see, do you think that these different avenues are sufficient for the kids that want to come here and want to stay? But for the majority of children, no, right? Because the kids that we represent are the kids that have already been identified as children who have legal relief in the Mm -hmm. United States, who have... They're, the the children that the Florence Project represents are really the most vulnerable of all kids. They mm-hmm. have nobody. Um, and so that's not the case uh, for every child, though yeah. a lot of the children coming by themselves are extremely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. We don't... The kids who have somebody to go to in the United States, they may we may never see them again, and so we don't know what ends up happening with their case. Mm-hmm. But no, I would say for those kids, a lot of the kids that te- they t- don't tell us everything yeah and so for why is it that you only represent people who well actually i guess like who stays in tucson and who leaves is are the kids who are leaving the kids who have sponsors in other places in the u.s yeah so to summarize the way that child immigration for unaccompanied minors kind of works it a kid comes here by himself mm-hmm or herself to the United States. And if they're from a country that is not contiguous, so not touching the United States, so El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, then they get put into this system where they're detained in a shelter. Mm-hmm. And the shelter works, Some most shelters work really hard to try to find the kid a relative in the United States. So most kids, their goal is to get out of the shelter and to go with a family member. But some kids 
don't have family members they have nobody Mm -hmm. and so they are stuck Mm -hmm. and in order to figure out what's happening with these children that's where we come in we try to counsel with them we try to talk to them we try to figure out do they have an avenue for illegal relief in the united states Mm -hmm. and most of the kids in that position where they have nobody to go to they're usually the most vulnerable and so they usually they they usually have an avenue to fight a legal case to fight their deportation but that's not true sometimes there are kids that don't have anything any form of legal relief that we can fight for them or they don't trust us enough yeah to tell us that's really hard and it's really hard because we know that there's something there because we see an extremely sad vulnerable and a child who is traumatized afraid to return to their country but they won't tell us why Mm -hmm. and we'll meet with them over and over and they won't release that information Mm -hmm. because they're so afraid and that's understandable really yeah but that's so hard yeah yeah so I noticed in the adult asylum world there were a lot of people who suffered really terrible persecution but it wasn't recognized as a protected category in asylum like a lot of the gang-related claims mm-hmm. and a lot of the domestic violence claims after matter of AB was decided were just getting totally dismissed. Do you have that same issue in the kids' world? Because you said that you feel like most of them, you can find asylum for them. But there are also a lot of gang cases for kids too, right? So is that a recognized PSG or like why do they win? No, they that is not a recognized PSG. And actually, we're... We were really lucky in the kids' world maybe a few years ago where had a lot of recognized avenues for particular social groups. So there's so many elements to asylum, and one of them is particular social group, and Mm -hmm. that's sometimes the most difficult to meet, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to have a really recognizable group. Yeah, Yeah, really strict. But kids were often recognized, maybe not gang-based cases, but usually there was other categories where that kid could be recognized Mm -hmm. but now after the department of justice has been changing every single uh, opinion that we used to rely on every it feels like every month there's a new opinion coming out and Mm -hmm. so now we don't have those avenues so we're finding ourselves finding kids who have been through extremely horrific events and we don't know we we don't think we're going to win. And so we're finding ourselves preparing for telling these kids, like, we don't know what's going to happen to you. But what we do know is that we're going to fight really hard for you uh, till the very end. We're going to, you know, if you lose and you're ordered deported, we're going to keep going. We're going to appeal. We're going to go above and beyond and try to make something happen. But yeah, we are finding that the law isn't on our side and it's really hard. Which opinion that has been decided during the Trump administration do you feel has most negatively impacted kids and their eligibility for asylum? Well, definitely matter of AB, which is domestic violence Mm -hmm. asylum, but also the matter of LEA, which is a family-based asylum. Yeah. A lot of our kids, often their persecutors, the people who are trying to hurt them, are their families. And we see a lot of kids coming because of forced work, mm-hmm. in, like indentured servitude, mm-hmm. slave, slavery, mm-hmm. modern slavery. And it's often the families that are doing this out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And then the government fails to protect these kids. Yeah. And these kids are now in a place where they are being told, 
your family is in a group, mm-hmm. even though everybody in the community <clears throat> knew that this child was being forced to work and the government turned a blind eye and mm-hmm. social services never stepped in to help these children. Mm-hmm. And how, I guess, how common of a situation is that? I find it really common, but of course we see the children that they're leaving because they are so afraid of the people that are forcing them to work or Mm -hmm. that are starving them. And so we really do see the most vulnerable of children and so we see them, that is really common. Yeah. And are the majority of kids still unaccompanied minors? I don't know. Okay. But what I do know is that I think there are a lot of kids that are coming with their families Mm -hmm. and they're coming with a parent or aunt Mm -hmm. and so they're now those kids are not being afforded all of the protections that unaccompanied minors are being afforded and so those kids they're being held in mexico Mm -hmm. uh, the remain in mexico policy or depending on the situation of the parent they might still be separated Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's really concerning I wanted to take a step back and uh, define what a particular social group is because I know that there's a lot of people who listen to the podcast who haven't gone to law school yet or who are never going to go to law school but like listen because they want to understand about the law. So um, can you explain what a particular social group is and why that's relevant to the asylum world? So one of the claims that we see most often is that a kid came here because they were really afraid Mm -hmm. of returning to their home country. And so under the United States law, the basis of there's a, you can ask for asylum, but asylum has a lot of requirements. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those requirements are really hard to meet. Mm -hmm. But by far, I feel the most convoluted and the most complicated of all requirements is that they have to fall under, well, some of them aren't complicated, but they has to, your fear has to be based off of religion or political opinion or something like that. Or like race or ethnicity. Yeah. And then there's particular social... I think... we say nationality? No. <laughs> race, ethnicity, nationality, uh, religion, and then particular social group. Basically. Yeah. And the... Per- so <laughs> still remember the KYR. The person... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the person, the child, has to be afraid of being really severely hurt or persecuted based yeah. on one of these reasons. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough that the kid is afraid just because he's afraid. It has to be for a specific reason and there has to be evidence that it's for that reason. So some of them are easier to prove. Religion, right? It's really easy to prove. I was wearing my cross and they were saying, we're beating you up because you're an evangelical Christian. Mm -hmm. And so stop being, going to church. That's really easy to prove. But particular social group is a requirement that you can be, you know, persecuted on this basis, but it's, to prove it becomes a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have the added requirement that the courts have all of these other requirements mm-hmm. that have been created over time. And so a lawyer has to basically meet all of these added requirements that courts have created, basically saying that it's a group that is socially visible and is distinct and is particular. And so there's all of these added requirements that have been created over time that make it even more complicated for a kid to explain that this is actually a group. Mm -hmm. The thing we see a lot 
in court is a kid will say, we'll be asking them questions about why things happened and why they think the gangs will find them. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, the gangs know where everybody is. Right. The gangs are a network. And, yeah. and Well, in a lot of places in Central America, the gangs are like essentially the government. Like in, because yeah. MS-13, I know about some of the particular MS-13 operates in rural areas and where in those places that aren't as densely populated, really the MS-13 gang members are just are the government essentially because they control who enters and exits neighborhoods what businesses are allowed to operate all that well exactly right (laughs) so everybody knows that and so the kid will say something like that in court they'll say how does the ms-13 know you're a part of this group and then the kid will say they just know everybody the ms-13 knows everything really about everyone they have you know lookouts they have they are a pseudo government. The kid doesn't use the word pseudo, but they'll say like <laughs> they, they run everything. Though. Yeah. And the judge will say, but how do you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just really sad because everybody knows that. And that's what the kid does. Well, yeah. everybody knows this. And so then it makes it that much harder. The particular social group requirement is extremely difficult to meet mm-hmm. and really hard for a kid to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really hard also because there's been that case that said that refusing to join a gang isn't considered a political opinion, yeah. even though I, th- I would argue that it is. Definitely. Yeah. And then and the other thing about particular social group is that you have to be pointing to something in your identity that you can't change mm-hmm. or something that's like so fundamental to yourself that you shouldn't be able to change it. So that's why like mm-hmm. religion is an example. And I think that's why like family was mm-hmm. something that I think... It's so basic. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you know, unfortunately there are a lot of situations where kids are in abusive homes, and if you really think about it logically, it's like, why are they being abused? It's because they are the child of that person. Exactly. And the government's... Oh, so uh, to get back to what you were saying about the other difficult aspects of um, asylum that need to be proved, you need to be able to prove that you tried to seek help from your government, and they weren't able to help you or they were unwilling to help you. And that's another frustrating thing, like you're saying, because, you know, police exist in these areas, but they're actually just kind of, honestly, an extended arm of MS-13. And so, like, I always hated asking that question when I was doing an intake because they would be like, no, I didn't call the police. Like, I just told you that the police are corrupt and that (laughs) they, like, work with MS-13. But that's something that it's you and the standard that you have to meet to prove that I think is really hard. And you know, I think judges can take judicial notice of the fact that police don't operate in the Salvador in like these certain areas. And for whatever reason, people or the judges are not willing to recognize that. I know. And one of the scariest things about the kids world is that we used to be able to ask for asylum for the majority of kids in before the asylum office so it's really weird there's this thing in immigration law that basically unaccompanied kids they get another special protection Mm -hmm. that they get two bites at the apple pretty much Mm -hmm. the first bite is at the asylum office where they're supposedly trained to be child friendly and you know do (laughs) child friendly interviewing techniques things like that yeah and then it's true it's in a different setting it's not in a courtroom yeah no one wearing a robe it's less intimidating it is less intimidating for the most part but then if they don't do well or the asylum officer feels there's something that is missing or that they can't decide then they'll send it to the immigration judge and then the kid will have to go through everything again Mm -hmm. but what i wanted to say is that (laughs) 
oh yeah, immigration judges have a really high standard for that element of getting going to the police mm-hmm. or seeking help from the government. Whereas the asylum office, I feel in my in my experience practicing, yeah. they were always a little more generous with kids. They were always like, okay, I understand you were a child and you couldn't really call the police because mm-hmm. you were 15 and your parents were the abuser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they will rely on what the kid tells you. But immigration judges... A lot of the judges are used to working with adults. And so I am really worried that in the coming months, immigration, when we go, we're going to be going before immigration judges a lot more. Wait, why is that? Because of the requirement, the new requirement that people ask for asylum before they come to the United States. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of the asylum bans. Yes. (laughs) Should we get into that? Yeah. I know. I I don't know that much yet, but what I do know is that basically it requires that whatever country a kid traveled through that he should have asked for asylum and that basically he wasn't afforded protection Mm -hmm. in order to be able to apply for asylum here in the United States. It's like a total deviation from how we've always done asylum law and how like also it's in violation of the international commitments that we've made. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to say that this is like explicitly an anti-Central American policy because it only applies at the south, on the southern border. So it doesn't apply to anybody coming like from Canada. And obviously, who is that going to affect? It's going to affect anybody who's south of Mexico. Yeah. And yeah. It's <laughs> definitely a really, it's a really intense policy. I don't see any basis for it in the law. I really don't know how they can even do that but i will say that it's really gonna affect kids in a really harsh way because i in my personal opinion i think most of our kids apply for asylum or special immigrant juvenile status but if a kid coming from you know central america think of any 12 or 13 or 14 year old kid you know they're not thinking like let me go apply for asylum in mexico and let me make sure that that they didn't help me and okay now i'm gonna go to the united states where i actually find it safe mm-hmm. and okay now i'm here okay i'm gonna win my case they're not thinking like that their brains are yeah. not fully developed so i think it's really important to note that these a lot of these kids are really really poor yeah and i oh when i talk to a lot of people who were detained who didn't really know what asylum was mm-hmm. which makes sense and because their governments don't offer asylum so why would they know about it yeah <laughs> yeah i just think it's important to note that too it's a 12 year old and it's also a 12 year old who comes from a totally different context do you think they're yeah. gonna understand that they need to present themselves to a certain mexican official and then ask for asylum in yeah. particular no <laughs> uh trust me they won't and also like I will be 100% honest, a lot of the kids that I work with, they just trust the trusted individual that they're working with. Yeah. And it's really well, hard because yeah. they don't understand why this is important or what a court is or who a judge is, even though we explain it to them over and over again, mm-hmm. or why a judge is important in this case. They, the only thing they really understand that I, I really feel confident most of the time is that they want to stay in this country mm-hmm. and that through this process they can get there with our help. And that's really nice, and that is at least comforting for me. But, yeah, they're not going to understand that. So it's really going to affect kids because they're not going to ask for help in these other countries because they're children. And so what effectively is going to happen is that these kids are not going to be able to ask for asylum anymore, so they're not going to get the two two bites at the apple. Mm -hmm. They're just going to 
have to go immediately before the immigration judge to ask for help. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to get to go to the asylum office, who is more kid-friendly, who does have better conditions. They're just going to have to go to the immigration judge, and they're going to have to go, and they're not going to be able to ask for asylum. They're going to have to ask for another form of relief that's called the Convention Against Torture. Mm-hmm. And or it's really hard to right? meet. Or withholding of removal, right? Or withholding of removal, mm-hmm. both of which are really hard to meet. Mm-hmm. And that's just horrible because... It's adding a lot, a lot of more barriers to a system that is already full of barriers. Mm-hmm. And so, why is it that the asylum office can't see a case that's withholding only? Hey, y'all. So you might be wondering why it is that asylum officers wouldn't be able to adjudicate a withholding of removal claim. Gabby and I couldn't decide on the answer, so I looked it up, and the reason that an asylum officer can't adjudicate a withholding of removal claim is something that comes from the INA, which is the statute that governs immigration law. What I do think is that asylum office, they have always held the stance that anything that is too complicated or too, if it's not an easy slam dunk kind Mm -hmm. of case, Mm -hmm. they won't listen to it. They immediately send it to the immigration judge because they say they don't have the power Mm -hmm. to adjudicate those types of claims. And so... Well, actually, cause some asylum officers don't even have a law degree, right? No. Yeah, so, okay. A lot I, of them I, don't. I, I can kind of see that making sense, yeah. Yeah, they don't. They don't. <laughs> For example, I've had cases where, honestly, the strategy we've thought about is, who knows, maybe we should just go right to the immigration judge because we know it's the type of case that an asylum officer may not look at because it, there's a novel issue in the law. Mm-hmm. And those are always really complicated calls that we have to make as attorneys, but mm-hmm. it's definitely something that... I don't think most asylum officers will think about that. So the other asylum ban is the asylum ban for anyone who crosses between ports of entry. Yeah. Have you seen that affect your clients? No, no, that hasn't affected our clients as much. Or if it's affected them, we haven't really seen it. And that's the scariest part, I think, of this whole system. Yeah. That sometimes we we may not... It really, the people on the ground at the border are the people that are really making a difference and that's why i'm really excited that like the florence project is working with kbi now which is the kino border initiative Mm -hmm. because we now get to see things that we didn't see before because we were just seeing the people once they were in the detention centers Mm -hmm. so if people were turned away detention centers at ice detention or children who were at detention centers because they had arrived as unaccompanied minors Mm -hmm. and then were detained Mm -hmm. so we never we we sometimes hear things from kids, but the kids don't really understand what's happening. Yeah, and they don't know where that the other children are from, or if they're with parents, or so kids aren't always the best at explaining. 
oh, by the way, I came with another Salvadoran kid who was also an unaccompanied minor, and yeah. they didn't let him in. Yeah. So we don't, they don't talk to us like that. So that's really exciting that Kino Border Initiative really gets to hear firsthand what is happening, who is being turned away, or who isn't, mm-hmm. or what is happening at the border more closely. Yeah. But we haven't heard any of that ha- affecting our kids at this time. Okay. Yeah, I really appreciated their kind of newsletters. They It was through KBI that I learned that there's actually a lot of Mexicans are being denied asylum also, yeah. even though the, the ban of not applying in your own country doesn't apply to Mexicans because they're seeking asylum from the Mexican government. So yes. like, thankfully, the Trump administration still thinks that it would be really absurd if they had to first seek asylum. And so have you seen kids that have been affected by that or if not by the Remain in Mexico policy? When I first started as an attorney, which was three and a half years ago, or I wasn't barred yet, but it, I think that then I guess that was in a long time ago, we saw that it was definitely harder for kids to win, Mexican kids to win cases mm-hmm. always and we don't know if that has to do with the geography that we're right here right by mexico and so maybe there's more mexican kids around here mm-hmm. we never really understood what was happening or why and honestly i haven't seen as many mexican kids lately and i also don't know why but i think that it, it was changing every day yeah we never know what's gonna happen tomorrow but i i don't i believe that that could be true yeah yeah. What they wrote in the KBI newsletter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So right now, you're mostly seeing Central American kids. Definitely. Okay, so based on what your clients have told you, like just all of your clients recently, do you think that there's any factual truth to this idea that Guatemala, for example, could be a safe country where like a Salvadorian person could seek asylum? Yeah, no, I don't think, I, I think they are all very afraid, right? They're all very afraid of Guatemala, Mexico. They're just, they've lived through horrible stuff mm-hmm. on their way here. And mm-hmm. that's the hardest part, I think, about working with these kids. Yes, it's hard learning about their stories in their home countries. That is really hard too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what's kind of, at least for me, even more horrifying is when you get to know them and then they nonchalantly tell you, oh yeah, and I've seen people fall off the trains or yeah. I've seen this horrible thing happen in Guatemala or mm-hmm. I've seen this this other horrible thing happen to me right on the border. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, you're just casually telling me that as if it, they're definitely afraid. Right, right. But it's, they've seen so much trauma on their journey that they're just, I think, in shock sometimes. They're just yeah, telling you. It's normalized. It's become them. normalized to them. But yeah. they're like, when I ask them, well, why didn't you stay there then? And I even feel very normalized in saying that. Why didn't you stay there? I know. It feels, it sounds awful, right? <laughs> and then they're like, um, because I would die. And I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. But because they, they talk about it in such a way, you kind of are like, oh, well, why did you just stay in Guatemala? And they're like, because they would kill me. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And you forget that you're talking to a 12-year-old who's petrified, and it's just really sad. Yeah. And, like, people just coming from really different societal contexts. I think, unfortunately, when you grow up as a kid in a war-torn country or just in a country where there's a lot of gang violence, for example, yeah. you see a lot of stuff, and yeah. you just start to think that that's a part of life. Yeah. And that's one of the saddest things for me, too, is realizing that my clients 
don't recognize mistreatment because mm-hmm. they just see it as the way that humans interact with them. Yeah. It's like one of the saddest things. And it's weird because they do see it. Yeah, but they're But they, they do see it because they come here mm-hmm. and they're like, I'm coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what makes them also so special, right? That mm-hmm. they're risking their lives in every way to come. But then... Again, they do normalize it in the way they speak so much. Mm-hmm. But they're so smart. And they're just like, yeah, I would die. And I'm like, yes, okay. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to point out also that... So one of the reasons why the caravanas have been happening is that mm-hmm. increasingly the routes from Central American countries north have become... Hubs, hubs of criminal activity, the mm-hmm. cartels and stuff, the cartels and gangs will follow yeah. migrant paths because they're always looking for vulnerable people to help traffic stuff or just to labor for limb in some way. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the most vulnerable people like unaccompanied kids, trans women, queer folks, are the, and indigenous people are the ones who are really being targeted by the cartels and the gangs. So I just wanted to point out also that that's another reason why I think it's really silly to be like, oh yeah, if you reach Guatemala, like you can ask for asylum there. It's like, no, like this whole route that they take, because there's yeah. routes, you know, yeah. are well known. And because of our immigration system in part, it's become really dangerous. Definitely. And I think that's something that we, whenever I meet with a kid and they tell me a, Oh, everything was great as I traveled up here. I know immediately that kid doesn't trust me yet. And I take a step back and I start to build rapport. I start to work really hard to really understand this child because they don't feel safe with me yet. And I think the more experience you get, I start to see now, kind of start to learn things that you're like, you improve on your practice, right? Mm -hmm. And once they trust you, you hear everything and you hear the full story and you really see how scary the journey is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't I don't think I could make it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Oh, I know. That's why I'm always an admiration of my clients because they're just constantly doing things that I think would break me. I agree 100%. <laughs> Going back to Romania and Mexico, or, or metering because in in Arizona technically Romania Mexico hasn't been put in place mm-hmm. but the this thing called metering which is I think in some ways similar to what's happening with Romania Mexico mm-hmm. occurred so they're really limiting the number of people every day that can come to the port of entry through the port of entry mm-hmm. and ask for asylum and so they're like giving people numbers yeah. an analogy that's so strange to make but when you go to the butcher and you take a number and you yeah. just wait for your turn, that's what it is. But people are waiting for months and months, actually, in these border towns. And so I wanted to ask you, what kids are vulnerable to in those border towns? Like, what are the dangers that they see there? And why is it such a bad idea to have kids staying in these towns for months? Yeah, kids are the most... Unaccompanied kids, I think, are the most vulnerable. Yeah. Because... There are a lot of cartel activities that happen along the border and kids, especially by themselves, 
are targeted for drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. They're, tar- they're targeted to walk people across the border because the actual people who are running the operation don't want to be caught with these groups. Mm-hmm. So they'll give kids like walkie-talkies and force them and they make really serious threats um, mm-hmm. against their lives. Mm-hmm. I think other things that happen is kids are held ransom and then families in home countries are called and forced to pay money in order to let the kid go. Mm-hmm. So it's they just hold the kid for a week or something and mm-hmm. then so all of those things are really scary and so kids in border towns are super vulnerable because everybody the cartel knows that this is where the vulnerable people are mm-hmm. and so yeah, it's not a good idea. It's not safe in any way. And so yeah, we we always talk to kids about, you know, what happened at the border. Uh, but yeah something that i think is really messed up about that situation also is that you know in a situation where i would argue that a child is being trafficked because they're being forced to labor in terms of taking the swede or whatever across Mm -hmm. the border or in terms of guiding people quote unquote or quote unquote smuggling people across the border and they are being trafficked because they're minors they can't consent they're being coerced but actually in doing those things they get disqualified from a lot of things like Mm -hmm. asylum for example and also they can't even qualify for a T visa, yeah. which I think is really messed up. Well, we're still fighting for that. So <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm gonna fight to till the end. <laughs> I'm gonna fight till the end. Um, I'm definitely we're still fighting for that. But yes, for example, trafficking is a a bar mm-hmm. that cannot be waived for like special immigrant juvenile status. Mm. So yeah, it's very concerning to us, and we argue that to the government mm-hmm. all the time. Kids can't consent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just one of those bars that cannot be waived, mm-hmm. uh, which is really sad for those kids because they didn't consent. Yeah. Yeah. In your experience, how have the Central American kids been processing these policies that are very clearly racist? Well, kids are, they don't, really understand how unfair it is because mm-hmm. they I think they just see what they're seeing today and they don't see how it was yesterday and so to them they think it's really weird because it they should be outraged mm-hmm. they should be like up in arms about it but instead they're like thank you so much for being here next to me mm-hmm. while I'm probably gonna lose my case and be deported and I'm like child please no we're mad but instead they are so thankful they are so grateful and it's really that's another thing that is so heartbreaking because i know that if i had done x case three years ago this kid would already be you know applying for legal residency yeah and so i think that's something that practitioners are dealing with every single day and that's something that they haven't figured out i we've seen a lot of attorneys that we know stop there's been a lot an influx to the immigration system where a lot of people are coming because they want to help mm-hmm. but we've also seen a, a exodus of people leaving because they couldn't handle like all of these changes and all of these it's you know, very heartbreaking yeah it's to practice during this time yeah those are the things i wanted to ask you about is in your opinion in terms of what kids experience and the different ways that they can stay here mm-hmm. what are the differences between obama era immigration and trump well, some of the things are 
you know, there's re- they're really different, like asylum, mm-hmm. where there's all of these new decisions. Yeah. I don't think there's all these new decisions coming out every day saying that there's we can't do asylum under a certain group or another group mm-hmm. or another group. <laughs> and so it's... it's uh, uh, so that's really different. The Trump administration is making a concerted effort to eliminate asylum. And that's yeah. something that Obama did not do. I, I will say that. <laughs> but... I think under both administrations, there were family separations. Of course, it wasn't like an official policy, but it was happening. Mm -hmm. I saw family separations. And I think special immigrant juvenile status has not changed very much. But there are like rumors that there are like possible regulations that are going to be coming down that are concerning. I don't know how concerning yet because we don't know mm-hmm. what's gonna happen. And so I don't wanna like freak everybody out by yeah, saying yeah, yeah. that. But asylum is really different. And the other thing that's different is there are a lot of kids coming. And I think that was also during the Obama administration, but because of that, there's only a certain number of visas every year that the government will give mm-hmm. and they haven't increased those caps. Uh, and so basically, a lot of the kids that qualify for special immigrant juvenile visa have to wait like seven or more years to get legal residency in this country. And that's a really long time for a a little teenager to wait. And if that's the only type of status that they have to fight, they don't have, they don't, special immigrant juvenile status doesn't give a work permit. So they're like living out in the world without a work permit, waiting for residency for a really long time because there's a lot of people waiting for that status. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really shitty. I didn't know that they didn't get work permits no. because that makes it really hard to live in the U.S. because you either have to be exploited, you know, at a place where they're willing to hire you if you're undocumented, yeah. and like a lot of times that leads to exploitation, or you just can't work and you can't support yourself, and that also puts you in a really tough situation. Definitely, yeah. exactly what a SIDGE application is, what you have to prove? I don't think so. Okay. Basically, a special migrant juvenile status application, you have to prove, oh, I think I did say that your parents abused, abandoned, or neglected you. Mm-hmm. And you have to prove that to a judge in a state court in whatever state you're living. And, and you have to be under 18 mm-hmm. when you prove that. In some states, you can be over 18, but it's USCIS has been cracking down on those cases really hard. So it's probably better just to do it before you're 18. Yeah. But then you have to, once you get those orders saying that you were abused, abandoned, or neglected, you then have to you know, ask USCIS to review the order to make sure that they agree that the state court did the right thing. And there's all these elements that USCIS reviews. And then they say, yeah, we think you qualify, or maybe that they don't think you qualify. Usually that, hopefully that you do. But then you have to wait in this limbo for a long time in to apply for legal residency until there's a visa available. Mm-hmm. And so kids are living here with approved special immigrant juvenile status, but no legal status. And so it's a really hard thing to explain to a kid, hey, you've just been approved, but that doesn't mean anything to your removal case. You could still be technically deported. We don't think it's the right decision that the judge would be making an error, I think. Mm-hmm. But they might still do it because they have to meet. They have very strict quotas that they have mm-hmm. to meet. And of course, we would appeal. But again, it's just going to be a long legal process. Mm-hmm. And when these kids really 
are just waiting for legal residency. One of the things that I've heard that can be really difficult about a SIG application is that we were talking earlier about how a lot of times kids, their parents do force kids to labor, but it's it's out of poverty. Yeah. It's just a really weird situation where, because I think prior to a lot of industrialization, really like the purpose of having kids was so they could help you labor on your yeah. farm. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> In a situation where you don't have, where you are a subsistence farmer and you just don't have mm-hmm. any other way to make money, that's the situation. So how do you, how do you kind of tread that line of like respecting that parent's situation and circumstances, but also fighting for the legal relief because you know that this kid deserves to stay here and like wants to stay here. That is something that I think state law does for us. That whereas. There, the state law, you have these legal requirements that you have to meet, and there has to be like a harm, but then there has to be added element that it actually harmed the kid. Mm-hmm. Or, so there's all these, there's all these requirements. For example, I've heard, for example, that a parent can't neglect their child if they're an alcoholic if it didn't actually put the child in harm's way. It, a, a state shouldn't technically take away that a parent's children mm-hmm. just because that person drinks every night. It has mm-hmm. to be that they drank and then they put the kid in the car Mm -hmm. and that it caused harm to them because Mm -hmm. they were they could have been in an accident or something Mm -hmm. so the state law kind of already controls a little bit of what we can do Mm -hmm. but then the kid controls a lot of it i've met kids where they're i don't care that my parents did xyz i'm not filing this visa and i'm like what you don't understand what you're giving up or you know in my mind i find it the most terrible thing because i'm a part of this system yeah and that's really sad and i think about that all the time i Mm -hmm. reflect on that because i'm like this visa is not the most important thing in the world to this human being you know Mm -hmm. and i have to like take a step back and say like actually yes i support you whatever you need i'm here for you whatever you want to do but just let me explain to you i don't care that you say no a hundred times let me just explain to you what the consequences of this decision you're making are and that's fine if you choose to make it so i think a lot of times the kids know Mm -hmm. actually i'm i was on this farm because i wanted to help out and i Mm -hmm. felt like a part of helping or actually i felt like i was just an object and i felt unsafe every day yeah and so they kind of Sometimes, not always, but sometimes they draw a line for us. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important and shows how you're a client-centered lawyer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, so to wrap up, we've been here for an hour. I wanted to talk about all the different ways that family separation occurs at the border and also within detention. One of the things that I would see a lot when I was in detention was that there would be undocumented parents who had U.S. citizen children who would be put in Child Protective Services or or is it DCS, the Department Mm -hmm. of Child Services? The Arizona government would come in and would take these children because there was nobody to care for them because the parent was being detained. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes... When they're in detention, the parents aren't given access to a telephone. They're not also not transported to their hearings to yeah. fight for their kids. And so a lot of times parents, while fighting their immigration case, will lose custody of their U.S. citizen children. That's one way in which, in which family separation happens. What are other ways that you've seen that happen? I think that's... So family separation happens a lot of ways, right? One way is family comes to the border, but the parent has multiple times that they've entered the United States without permission. So then because they have so many re-entries, that parent is again 
prosecuted through the federal system for a criminal offense and then they're put in a different detention center so they have to take the parent away Mm -hmm. that's one way that we've Mm -hmm. seen it another way that that it's technically still allowed is if the government thinks that this child is in an unsafe situation Mm -hmm. and i don't really know the definition of that but whatever any person any it sounds like any parent and child where they think there's a safety risk they could maybe separate the parent and the child but i think the one that for me right now besides those two that i've just discussed that is the most concerning is the one where the arizona department of child services takes the kid away because parents in detention this is the one my colleague really advocates for rebecca Mm -hmm. she's like all about this and it's because it's so a lot of people don't know about it right and it's, um, a, it's an outrage it's, yeah it's another way that it's like state kidnapping yes so these parents are in immigration detention right and um, which they did not choose to be there yeah and so then the kids are in this state system and and then a lot of times unfortunately right now although like i said my colleague rebecca is really working to try to educate all practitioners, a lot of immigration practitioners don't understand yeah. the process of when kids are being removed and when it becomes permanent. There comes like this point where those kids will could be given up for adoption yeah. or it's like they're no longer ex-parents' kids, right? They're mm-hmm. no longer their under children the under yeah. the law, mm-hmm. under the law. And so a lot of immigration practitioners don't understand that or they don't understand how severe the system is, like mm-hmm. where if you don't show up everything will be they'll sustain every allegation against the parent and say actually we're gonna we think that all of these things are true because this parent didn't appear to defend themselves and things like that yeah and so yeah that's a uh, i think one that hasn't had enough spotlight and i think needs to be every immigration practitioner in detention should be asking to the person they're meeting where are your kids and Mm -hmm. is the state involved and really finding Mm -hmm. out and i think every judge should be asking parents counsel if those parents are detained and taking that into consideration (laughs) (laughs) and also i think parents counsel needs to learn a little bit more about the immigration system yeah i I agree because i think that if you're representing somebody in their deportation proceedings i think to provide effective legal representation you need to be aware of the dcs system and how that's going to impact your client's well-being yeah because their goal might be just for a kid when they say they don't want to fight sage because they don't want to say anything bad about their parents you might have a parent that says i'm willing to take this deportation yeah. because i don't want to lose my kids because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. from maybe my home country i'll have access to a phone or to a fax machine or to whatever it is that i need mm-hmm. i don't want to oh, my rights to be lost mm-hmm. and so a lot of times we forget and we do because i do it all the time when this when i hear that and i have to take a step back and and really think about what that kid wants Mm-hmm. not what is best for the case and i think it's the same with the parents we don't know what they're and it's unfortunate that they're put in this position where they might have to choose one thing over the other but mm-hmm. sometimes in this system that is what it comes down to yeah and i want to point out that this in particular really impacts mixed status families mm-hmm. and there's not very many but currently there aren't very many legal avenues for relief if you're a person who's been here for a long time and you mm-hmm. have U.S. citizen children or U.S. citizen... Yeah, you, let's just stick with children. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can only... There is a type of relief. It's called cancellation of removal. Mm-hmm. But 
to in order to win that, you have to be able to prove that your fam- U.S. citizen family member would suffer a unique hardship, and the stand you know the standard for that is actually so so absurdly high. And I would always. Honestly, I would feel terrible explaining this form of relief to people because I would, I would always have to preface it by saying, I know that anytime a person is deported, your family member is going to suffer. But I mean, it has so, what I'm saying is that it has to be more than that. And usually it's like the US citizen person has a grave illness yeah. or is completely financially dependent on this person. But still, even then, it's just really hard. And so I think we really need to, we need to get to a point where there is a legal path to citizenship or to some kind of legal status for people who have been here for a long time and who have U.S. citizen children. If we're outraged about family separation, then we need to be outraged about those things too. Yeah, and that's like the family separation nobody talks about. That's how we actually did do a presentation to a lot of judges and people in the community. And like I said, my colleague Rebecca has been making a lot of presentations in the last year about Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. And I think that is how we presented it when she did it with me. We said this is the family separation nobody talks about, but it is affecting so many people. And it's something that people just forget. Yeah. Yeah. The last type of family separation I want to bring up is like a grandmother and his oh, yeah. and their grandson or like an aunt and their niece or nephew or cousins or siblings. U.S. immigration law defines nuclear families. Actually, way. they define families just as nuclear families, even mm-hmm. though like our lives don't work like that. And mm-hmm. so that's another type of family separation that I've seen just like really, really tragic. And it, it just makes, it's just obviously punitive because why, if, somebody if a child does come here with a family member why would you think it's a better idea to separate them and put them in the care of the state like why in what situation would that ever be a good idea yeah so under the law right now when that happens they put the child they label the child as an unaccompanied child so Mm -hmm. then the child has to go through the unaccompanied child system Mm -hmm. the the adult family member oftentimes gets put into adult detention and go through a separate proceeding exactly even if their claims are related yeah and so that's really hard for kids. All, any type of separation is hard. So, yeah, you know, they're all really bad. <laughs> I don't know if there's a way to end this on a positive note because that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's just immigration laws. Yeah. It's a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> right it is. I think a positive note is that. You see, I know I just made a face yeah, for yeah, everybody. Really trying. No, I'm really no. I, I have it. I have okay, it. I got okay, it. Okay, I got it. Go, okay. Go. The positive note is that you would be shocked to see how resilient these kids are. And I always think about this when I have to give bad news. And I, I like, of course, I'm crying the week before I have to do it or the day before I have to do it. And, you know, in a situation where I feel horrible and then you have this little child, 17-year-old, which people think is nearly an adult, just be the warmest, sweetest, kindest person. And and I almost feel horrible like they're consoling you in a way. And I know that's horrible. But you have to be strong for them, right? Yeah, you yeah, you yeah. are strong. And yeah. they're just, you know what? Like, this is just another roadblock. Oh, I'm going to keep going. And yeah. they're so strong. They're so kind. You really do see that child in front of you. That to everybody else in the world maybe didn't portray that. You get to... You get to see kids at their most vulnerable states and then just overcome whatever it is they're overcoming. And to for me, uh, on a selfish note, it makes me really value the life that I have. Mm-hmm. And it really makes me 
I know this is kind of a side effect, or what do they call it? A like secondary symptom of oh, yeah, vicarious trauma. Oh yeah, I think it's like a symptom of trauma, I but <laughs> but I don't. I find it very positive, but I know it's on those lists as a bad sign. But like whenever I encounter something on my in my life that is hard, uh-huh. I always think back to like every one of those kids that has overcome something, and I'm like, this is nothing. Yes, I'll, I'll cry and I'll feel sad, but. Okay, yeah, Actually, this is nothing. <laughs> yeah, see, the reason why it's bad is because people will say, will minimize their own problems and then, like, not cope with it. Like, not cry or, like, yeah. not deal with the feelings because they're like, this isn't as important or as... I see, I know. see. Yeah. yeah. I'll still I'll still think it's important, but I... And I will feel my feelings. It does give me so much perspective yeah. and I'm, I can do this. I can do anything and... And if my clients can do anything, I can do anything. Mm. So that's a positive note. Okay, great. I love that. All right. Bye, everyone. I hope you learned a lot about asylum, immigration law, and kids. Bye. Bye. (laughs)